Welcome to TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. The presenting sponsor of TalkScript is SitePen, a JavaScript consultancy helping companies improve their apps, tools, and teams. Check it out at sitepen.com. Let's find out if TalkScript is your type of podcast. Hello, and welcome to TalkScript. I'm your host, Brian Forbes. I have with me today, Nick Nisi. Hello. Paul Shannon. Howdy. And we have a very special guest today, another Paul. So this isn't going to be confusing at all. We have Paul Campbell, the founder of Tito. Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi there. Good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I am, yes, the co-founder and CEO of Tito. We sell a lot of tickets online, particularly to a lot of JavaScript conferences. And yes, my claim to fame in the JavaScript world was that I was in the audience when Ryan Dahl unleashed Node.js to the world at JSConf EU 10 years ago. So kind of fame by proxy. Well, he, he was in the bar with me later that evening. Well, there you go. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was my drink. It was my, uh, my invitation. So All right. there you go. <laughs> I actually met him once as well, I think in 2010 at uh, Strange Loop in St. Louis. And I remember just uh, sitting and waiting for the bus to take us to the conference. And I'm talking to this guy and I'm like, yeah, I do JavaScript and I do all this cool stuff. And then <laughs> like, he didn't say much at all, uh, which seems totally like, like yeah. Ryan. And then later he was just up on stage talking about Node. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> that night there was another creator of a, I can't remember what it was called, but it was Tom Robinson. Okay. Um, and he, he, he his CommonJS implementation it didn't work out, I guess, or it didn't become the de facto. Right, but, right. Uh, but he lasted the night. Very cool. So yeah, I, I'm very familiar with Tito, with uh, specifically with JSConf and jumping in line mm -hmm. to get those tickets. Uh, that's where I've used Tito the most, I'm pretty sure. Cool, yeah. Uh, very much one of our very first customers. Chris Williams, I think. Was, yeah. Oh, that is, no. Chris Williams was the second. Michael Rogers, NodeConf. Oh, I yeah. think NodeConf was maybe our fifth or sixth paying customer. Mm. I like how you qualify that paying customer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, may, may, let, let's make that like the seventh or eighth overall customer. <laughs> right, right. Um, That's fine. Yes, Michael was, Michael took a leap of faith and Chris followed. So uh, yeah. Michael Rogers put it out there. Awesome. All right. Well, we will get into why you're here in, a, in just a few minutes. Uh, we wanted to give some community updates. I think there's just one. Uh, March 29th, TS 3.4 landed. Um, anything interesting in there, Nick? Oh, uh, yeah, we've kind of covered this on a previous episode, I think, when the release candidate came out. But um, the biggest things in here are an incremental flag for uh, faster subsequent builds uh, of TypeScript when you use that flag. So it can just go a little bit faster uh, for a few different commands. And then uh, higher order type inference for uh, from generic functions. And I could start reading code uh but I don't think that'll be that interesting. Uh, but we'll, we'll link to the... Uh, the can you read it as prose, Nick? <laughs> Maybe a haiku. As I'd uh, rather I do haikus, haiku. for sure. <laughs> but yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes, the, the blog post announcing that. Awesome, great. We didn't mention it, but one of my favorites here is the const casting or whatever they're calling it, where you can like make something read-only um, and it makes everything read-only, which is wonderful. That's probably the thing I'm most excited for. And ironically, I did not even mention it. <laughs> that's why i'm here i got your back thank you <laughs> we're a team all right great so that's that's our community update like nick said we'll put that link in the show notes uh and then we've got a little bit of a game paul you want to tell us your truthy falsy yeah so for most of you guys have been here but just to go over the rules 
Uh, so truthy falsy is where I'll go ahead and read off three statements, and um, and then at the end, everybody gets to pick which of those statements they feel is false. So there's uh, I'm going to read off three statements, and there are two true and one false statement in there. <laughs> And so the the challenge is to kind of pick apart, you know, where which one's false and and kind of how it relates to maybe the other two. So since I got free reign on this, uh, as you all know, <laughs> I love virtual reality. And so here we are. Uh, I'm going to read three that are all related to virtual reality. Since it's all virtual, all of them are false. Hmm. <laughs> they're They're virtually true, though. Okay. Okay. So, is everybody ready? Is this ready. true in a Schopenheimer sense or a Nietzsche? Oh no, that's <laughs> oh no, that's a little too <laughs> in, deep for this one. I, I was going to say that, and then then our guest just goes ahead and do, does that, right? <laughs> was it Nietzsche? In what sense do you mean? There's no absolute truth, is there? So, oh, right. let's not just get into that. Truth in your experience and uh, and others. And... What? Which dimension of truth do you mean? <laughs> oh, you guys are you guys are painting me so badly. All right, let's all get right. on to this. All right, before <laughs> before Brian evaporates, um, that's right. All right, here we go. First one. So, in 1838, Charles Whetstone demonstrated that the brain processes the different two-dimensional images from each eye into a single object of three dimensions. Viewing two side-by-side stereoscopic images gave the sense of depth and immersion. This led to the development of the popular Viewmaster nearly 100 years later and was used for virtual tourism. So that's the first one. And what was the date on that? 1838. 1838. All right, thank you. And that was Charles Whetstone. Also a believable name, right? <laughs> it's not Bob Vrson or anything like that. So Bob, it's right. so Bob yes. <laughs> Edward Fax Machine. Yeah. <laughs> All right, next one. In 1956, cinematographer Morton Hellig created Sensorama, the first VR machine. It combined multiple technologies to stimulate all of the senses. There were combined full-color 3D video, audio, vibrations, smell, and atmospheric effects such as wind. It was done using scent producers and a vibrating chair, stereo speakers, and a stereoscopic 3D screen, and six short films were developed for it. All right, number three. All right, number three. Any questions, Brian? You trying to trip me up now? Uh, (laughs) Go on. Which one of these is real now, Brian? Um, I don't know. (laughs) They're all fake because it's all VR. That one seemed very reasonable. I know, right? All right, third and last one. Hmm. In 1985, Jared Lehner and Thomas Zimmerman of VPL Research created the first head-mounted display connected to a computer. Objects were simple wireframes that moved and changed perspective with the user's head movements. VPL went on to create the Data Glove and Data Suit, whose design later led to the Nintendo Power Glove. Wow. Dang, that's... That, I mean, like with Tron, that seems so, like, like it could be true. Oh. I used to have a Power Glove. Oh, yeah? I did it, I did it work well for you? I never no. got mine to work well. <laughs> no. I had a Rob, <laughs> too, the little operating buddy. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. the best. Yeah. We were you living in the so future. <laughs> My parents deprived me. I'm sorry, Brian. This explains a lot, though. It's okay. It does. It does. Okay, so we've got the dude. The dude. In 1830. <laughs> yeah, Charles I mean, Whetstone. Child, Charles Whetstone in 1830-something, figuring out that the eyeballs combined images. Uh, and that one that, sounds the most far-fetched, but that's got to mean it's true. 
Right. I'm thinking that it has to do something with the dates. That's going to be the the little mm. thing that's going to be the falsest. I mean, mm, like, yeah. or a name, right? Uh, but anyway, I just gave away how I'm going to try and figure this out. Or you uh, messed everybody else up. Or I messed everybody <laughs> else up. All right. We'll just go in alphabetical order. Uh, so that means me first. I'm going to go with the second one. <laughs> the second one. I mean, smell sensors in the 50s. That just seems... That seems like a, a ride at Epcot or something. It, it also sounds so reasonable because that's like three years before Disney World. Was Disneyland the first Disneyland? So that's exactly the kind of entertainment that was being produced around then. Yeah, yeah, but I'm sticking with my gut. I'm going with okay. two. Okay. Hmm. 53. Okay. I guess that's me next, right? Oh, and- oh yeah. Alphabetical. <laughs> yeah, alphabetical it, it hasn't changed. I'm going to say that the first one is false because while it all sounds accurate, I think you said... 1830, and then uh, I forgot what was invented 100 years later, but it, I don't think it took Viewmaster. The Viewmaster. Did it took 100 years. Virtual tourism. That. So I'm going to go with... And what, is a, what is a Viewmaster? Can we ask that? It's a little plastic thing, and it's got two things that go on your eyes, and then it's got the little circular cards, and then oh. you, you hit the lever, and it switches oh, yeah. to a new one. That they could were, totally be 30s, though. Uh, that's what I was... Uh, okay. It could I totally be answer. 1830s. No, I wouldn't. Well, it could be. <laughs> All right, yeah. so so Nick, is that your final answer? Yes. All right. All right. So, uh, well, Brian, you you said the second one, and Nicky said the first one. The first okay. one. Okay. Well, I'll just go for the third one because it could be a date related one as well, and it could. What was it? Mid eighties. The, the dates to- five. Nineteen eighty five. They yeah. totally check out, but this could be like an off by one. I know. Like right? it was eighty six or eighty four. So. <laughs> All of the all of the claims seem as reasonable as the as the least, so I'm just going to go for the third, just guys. All right, all right. So you ready for the big reveal? We've got our answers locked in. All right. So the third one was the false one. Oh, for the first it. one, 1838. Uh, Charles Whetstone or uh, Wheatstone did demonstrate the brain processes. Oh um, wait, so that one was false because you pronounced his name wrong. No I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Grasping at straws, Brian. I know. I know. So that was true. So if you ever close an eye at a time and paid attention, you can kind of see the placement of objects changes. Hmm. Oh, yeah. And so like even before that, hundreds of years before that, there was experiences with immersion mm-hmm. using like murals and panoramas. And so that had been a long time coming for us to, to get to that point. In 1956, uh, Morton Hellig did uh, create Sensorama. The first film made for Sensorama was a motorcycle ride through New York, and it featured smells of pizza and exhaust. Which is fitting. (laughs) Pizza and exhaust. All right. And so the third one is false because the first head-mounted display with head tracking was developed by Ivan Sutherland in 1968. It was connected to a computer and it was named the Sword of Damocles because of how much the machine uh, weighed. It had to be suspended over the user's head due to that weight and complexity. VPL Research was actually responsible for the first commercial VR uh, named the iPhone and it was featured in The Lawnmower Man. Wow. Name the iPhone. I-E-Y-E phone. Yeah, iPhone. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm surprised they didn't make some sort of claim on that. I didn't mention it in the text because if I said iPhone, you guys would all be like, that's got to be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It had to be more subtle than that, even though that was, you know, that was the name of it. Wow. All right. Well, cool. Thank you, Paul. Sure. This is the first time I've been on the other side, not guessing and trying to keep a straight face. All right, so so Paul, uh, can you tell us a little bit about Tito and what people love about it, and uh, maybe some of the history behind Tito as well? Yeah, absolutely. So 
Tito was created to sell tickets to something called FunConf. And FunConf was a conference that we invented because, and this is such a great podcast to tell this story because we invented it because we were, we had gone to a lot of literal JS confs and we had met lots of interesting people, including like people who started GitHub, people who started NPM, NodeConf, things like that. And we wanted to invite them to Ireland to come and hang out with us Irish web developers. It turns out that there was already a very prominent and active scene in Ireland that we hadn't yet tapped into. So we just decided to create our own because we were JavaScript developers and that's what we do, <laughs> particularly in 2009. So I had used other software and I had also developed a lot of software and um, being someone who liked making things, I decided to make Tito to take the, the the pain away from selling tickets to FunConf. And the first implementation was simply an API that sent people off to PayPal and came back and they had tickets. And so you click buy, you pay, and you got a ticket. And to this day, I think that's the reason that people like it, developers in particular, because it takes away all the stress. You just pay and then you got tickets. And even if organizers want to collect other information like dietary requirements or whatever all that's done after payment and it doesn't sound very innovative but it's just great because you just <laughs> choose your tickets you click pay and then you got your tickets and then we've got a few little nifty things for collecting information afterwards and we've kept that really really simple and then the second part is for organizers we try to make it as simple as possible and as easy as possible to to implement and to manage your event afterwards. So, and again, like it was the J, literally the JS community that helped bring that about. Um, I When I wrote the first version of our embeddable widget, I was sitting in a JS conf um, chatting <laughs> to people and like Malta Ubel, who, who developed the Google button at Google, he sat down at a bar and helped me figure out the syntax for the Tito embeddable widget. And so it very much... I was kind of there just asking people what they would like and trying to make people happy. So those are the reasons that I think. And the, the other things that we do, we like try to support people, try to make sure that we're, we look after people, um, mm. always be responsive on support, that kind of thing. So really, really customer focused. And um, I, yeah, we just kind of make a, a product that we hope people would love and that we would use ourselves. Yeah. That seems really basic and straightforward, but I tell you, I've used Ticketmaster before and they get everything else, they get everything wrong. <laughs> so it can't be that easy. <laughs> well, you know, anytime I can well, smear I Ticketmaster think, a little bit. <laughs> to be honest, I think that's that's something, I mean, just kind of going to basic software development that that people kind of lose that idea of, let's make something that we would use ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> That, to me, just makes sense, unless you're an unreasonable user. But <laughs> Right. Well, there's also the difficulty that as soon as you become accustomed to something, you're no longer a new user of it. And so you're much more willing to forgive trade-offs that maybe a more a, a new user wouldn't. So it's always about trying to put yourself back in the position of somebody who's coming to something fresh, which it, it's basically yeah, yeah. impossible. So, but I always try and take that approach. It's like, what can we take away? What can we make easier um, for people who are coming Absolutely. to it for the first time? How did the the app start out? And then where is it now? Yeah. So as I said, it was the original implementation was literally 
an API call to PayPal and then a payment page. And that was in 2010 for the second iteration of FunConf. And then it became sort of a side project and really slowly iterated it and added features and like it was really, really slow. <laughs> um, we hosted some kind of community conferences. Then in 2012, uh, Michael Rogers, as I said, started using it for NodeConf and that became real. Like damn well, he crashed us on the first <laughs> sale. The thing totally oversold. There was no overselling logic, oh. um, but he didn't mind. He was totally cool about it. And then sort of that triggered a few things. And honestly, like Tito is a Ruby on Rails app, but it was very much the JavaScript community that created the first mushroom of users. So I think we, I think we processed about a million euros or maybe dollars worth of ticket sales in 2013, wow. Wow. which was really cool and kind of got us out there. And then we started taking paying customers, but it was still a side project for a while. And then I think the second year, maybe we processed 2 million. And then that was 2014, 2015, 2016, up to, up to today, where I think we're now processing something like 350,000 euros a week. Wow. Oh, I was going to ask, so what, what is the turning point then for you that a side project turns into, hey, maybe I should make this a business right, in a right. full-time yeah, for for us, there were three of us working on it, more or less. There were people that came and went, but there were three working on it from more or less the start. And what we wanted to do were be able to cover all of our expenses, cover lots of beefy servers so that it wouldn't fall down if a random event went on sale and spiked. So we always run at much more capacity than we need. So we need a big budget for AWS and then like a reasonably comfortable self-sustaining salary for three people. And that was always in and around 20000 dollars or euros a month depending on whether we were feeling optimistic right. <laughs> and yeah so when we reached that point around the midway of 2015 so it was 20k a month in it's sort of not recurring revenue because it's a metered billing model rather than a, a SaaS recurring revenue payment model but we roughly were getting somewhere between like 15 and 25,000 a month for most of 2015 so at that point then we sort of started thinking about clearing out our consulting backlogs mm -hmm. and incorporating as a company and starting to think about hiring folks and maybe selling some shares, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. So was, that was what, if I remember the, the dates, that was a three-year tale from, from when you kind of first introduced it to when you, you were able to actually turn it into a real full-time endeavor? From, <laughs> from first line of code, which was March 2010, mm -hmm. to incorporation and active, uh, going into, like, transitioning to an active, limited kind of LLC company, November 2015. So it was five and a half years. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Slow growth. Well, everything always takes longer than you think, you know? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> which absolutely. is why I ask these questions, you know? Real experience yeah. is is, you know irreplaceable yeah. and at the fundament of it all we always wanted to maintain our integrity so we never wanted to sell out or try to get big fast or to pursue hyper growth or, or do anything like that it was always just like build a tool build a tool build something we'd be yeah. happy with and it's probably slow to a fault but the, the goal is always to be like so this is yeah so i haven't re quite reached next year will be the 10th year since first line of code so always in the back of my mind i had that line it takes 10 years to build an overnight success mm. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. We're heading toward processing $100 million in revenue after that million a few That's years crazy. ago. So, um, <laughs> it, it, yeah. And so, yeah, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> 
so you said you said originally it was a Ruby on Rails app. What is it now? Hmm. So it's a that's a long story, and I think maybe the one that you're interested in hearing me tell. <laughs> so I'm I'm a little bit Ruby on Rails till I die. Um, I do dabble in other other languages, and I, I find myself writing a lot of vanilla JavaScript after uh, taking, as all Rails developers did for the last five years, a, a segue through CoffeeScript. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. And uh, again, being in the room at pivotal points in the JavaScript world, I was in the audience in 2000 and whenever it was when Brendan Eich and Jeremy Ashkenaz gave at uh, the talk about the intersection of ES6 uh, or ES Next and CoffeeScript. And that was it was a pivotal moment. That was the moment where Brendan announced that Arrow functions were coming to JavaScript and people gasped. It was just, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> CoffeeScript has made a significant contribution to the world of JavaScript. And I, for one, sort of appreciate it. And then Jed Schmidt, I think, he told me to ditch CoffeeScript because because of arrow functions and i was like what how could i ever let it go and then it's suddenly the whole rails world have, has gone native javascript and they're in love i still miss my coffee script days i must say but <laughs> it's nice to be it's nice to be on a par with the rest of the javascript world <laughs> yeah yeah coffee script definitely filled a gap that was needed when it came out it made a lot of things simpler and more straightforward especially for newer engineers that were still learning prototypical inheritance and all those crazy right. things you know, not that that relates to you, but, you know, we, we looked at it uh, at my company at the time because it was we were getting on the JavaScript bandwagon and, and trying to learn all those things. So, yeah, definitely good things came from CoffeeScript. For sure. I think it pushed the web forward. Guys, let's not get crazy here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you shouldn't use it today, but it did push the web forward yeah. in, you know, ways like bringing over features to ES Next or ES6 at the time. Uh, so it definitely served its purpose. Yeah. And so around about that time, I was looking for a JavaScript framework and I had I'd actually written my own, which was like trying to bring Rails, Ruby on Rails style MVC to the client side. And nothing, nothing really looked like that. But I think that, I think it was also like a false goal that we never, it, well, now that we're seeing things and we're seeing the component model of modern JS frameworks, that sort of feels a lot more natural for the client side. But at the time it felt like it would be lovely to write code that, felt like what the server-side code was I was writing. And again, I think that's why CoffeeScript was interesting because it sort of looked a bit Ruby-ish and it sort of acted a bit Ruby-ish in what it could do and, well, I suppose what it didn't do when you didn't, or when you left it, like it didn't have any implicit returns or whatever. So you could just write code that was sort of Ruby-ish. So I had written my own framework and because Jeremy Ashkenaz had done CoffeeScript, he also had a framework called Backbone. So I looked at Backbone, didn't really understand it. And so I more or less re-implemented my own client-side framework on top of Backbone. Like, didn't use Backbone views because I didn't really understand how they were how they were supposed to work. So I had a, a Backbone basic framework, then like a triple-layer abstraction on top of that that also hooked in jQuery to do all of it. It was just <laughs> nuts. And that's still live on the legacy version of Tito today. Oh, my um, word. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> in there, so... As all good engineers do, they re-implement the wheel. <laughs> oh, my God. And how, how much? <laughs> I'm curious um, if you named it anything. Not the Tito one, but the... the the framework I built before was called eyeballs.js because it used like the little uh, ASCII emoji with like one small eye and one big eye. Um, and that was its initializer function, like the jQuery dollar. It was, it was really silly, but it actually worked. And I did, I did use it in a couple of client projects and it was totally functional. 
it must be like a rite of passage from that time because we totally did the same thing too. And wow. because we, ours was built on top of backbone and then it was an evolution. It basically brought the declarative syntax from uh, Dojo one over to, to be able to use in backbone and it was a natural evolution. So we called it thumbs. <laughs> like literally that <laughs> oh was like word. the my parallel universe in the same universe. yes that's amazing <laughs> there was another framework that i wrote uh prior to all this and used in uh, before we did like the the event bright alternative we built like an early version of what like everybody built their own chat room app and so but it was like the the problem that slack eventually solved um and the the javascript framework that i used for that was something called whenever and whenever was sort of inspired by cucumber natural language programming where you could write your your logic as whenever i click um and then you put in a little you put in a little sentence like a button and then you could map the button to an element and then underneath that map to jquery and so you could write your your ui views oh in word. sort of a pseudo english and <laughs> i actually implemented a few of our little slack competitor um the, the core logic in that and that would have been so awful to maintain so i'm really glad that way i did that how did that work without source maps? <laughs> right. It sounds very much like Scratch, it's, right? Uh, com or command F, fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a fun project. So yeah, so there was this great big backbone framework, um, and then just lots of custom CoffeeScript. Just yeah, imagine compared to the the brevity of my new love, which is view files where the hate the hate the template and the logic and the css may well maybe is in the same file and everything the right. whole, all of the logic is and the style is encapsulated compared to that looking back now the the tito javascript is is a t oh, it's horrible it's I, I don't like you just can't find anything <laughs> it takes you five minutes to find anything before you <laughs> you uh you can do anything with it See, we've come a long way since the the old days of JavaScript. Like a lot of the new frameworks are very much opinionated in how they do things, which kind of gives you guide rails on how to do it. I remember back in the day, yeah, dealing with Backbone and jQuery when it's just like tools that kind of gave you the ability to do stuff and you were on your own past that. So I think we've all invented a lot of right. frameworks and ways of doing things that now we don't have to think about anymore. We just take accepted practices and and, you know, JavaScript being the biggest language in the world. I'm just, you know, going to throw right. that out there that we don't have to think about these things anymore because we can, as as a shared group, kind of move forward and go totally. past that. And a lot of the, I see a lot of comments about people who are frustrated about how difficult it is to get started. And that goes back to my comment about like seeing things from a newbie perspective. And I, I really do feel for that position. But, and the thing about it is, is like having these great tools to these advanced things for complicated app that doesn't mean that you can't just load a JS file and it just works on the web. And that's what I think is the right. beauty of it all is that like the, because these crazy advanced tools exist, that doesn't mean mm -hmm. you can't just do something simple. And I think that's important to be stated whenever you're saying how far we've come because the, the old ways are still work and they're still relevant. I think you mentioned view. Yes. And, uh, I, I assume that some of the new stuff you're doing at Tito uses Vue since you've yeah you've mentioned it a couple times yeah so I I mentioned uh, before that I mentioned Schopenhauer and and oh, who else well, Nietzsche earlier so my background is actually not <laughs> programming or computer science it's philosophy and I I have owned a book by both of those philosophers at some point but don't ask me any more questions about them <laughs> but the point is is that um, 
I don't ne always necessarily see things in, in similar ways. So anytime I looked at Angular or I looked at React and mm -hmm. I'm perfectly comfortable to dive in and do the hello world examples or whatever, I just, I never seemed to be able to make progress. And I have heard it said that Angular and React are the Moo tools and the, was, what is it, Dojo? Was it Dojo of the the, the framework wars from the, the mid 2000s? Careful what and you say that, here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is got an original Dojo contributor here. Right. Um, <laughs> I remember the one thing that I took away back from Dojo, I can't remember who it was, was saying it was basically that Dojo just did all of the things that people yeah. in 2019 want in 2009. <laughs> yeah. Pete Higgins um, probably. Yep. <laughs> but I guess that means that it's a it's a bit harder to pick up. So um, that was the jQuery thing. Whenever I, I I read a tutorial on jQuery, and I was like, "Whoa, it does that!" Because Rails was prototype at the time. And then yep. yeah. I think the Chris Wanstroth and PJ or he wrote a blog post about jQuery, and suddenly the whole Rails world just converted to jQuery overnight because they were like, "What? You can do all of that!" Um, so right, and and us Dojo guys at the time were like, "Yeah, we've been doing that for five years." Right, right, right. That's <laughs> right. so familiar. And so view for me was that it was just I was able to get the examples working easily without yeah. actually adding any tooling. And then as I got to learn it a little bit more, I found that adding the tooling built all these layers on top of what I was already able to do with the basic implementation. So at its very core, Vue works exactly like jQuery. You can just like include the script tag from a CDN and start using views. And to me, that's very appealing because you can just literally take a tiny component of your page and viewize it. And then you get addicted and you start learning about it and you figure <laughs> out, oh, this is, this is doing things in a way that makes this easier or that easier. Or you can, just change, you can just change the data and the whole UI updates. Like, whoa, you don't have to do, you don't have to write a click out. And it's like, whoa, there's just so many of these whoa moments for me, which I guess people who are into React, they're like, Oh, well, I mean, of course, we've been able to do that for the last three or four years uh, or, <laughs> right. or Angular before, but it's just it, it just clicked in my head. Uh, and I sort of stress the non-computer science background more firmly than the others did. So I sort of pursued it. And the interesting thing is that three years ago, almost to the month, I came back from paternity leave and I looked at that legacy spaghetti mess at Tito, and I was like, I want to simplify this. Mm. And back then, if you start a new Rails project, you get Turbolinks, right? And Turbolinks is very, very simple. It's not even a framework. It just goes to the server, fetches the page, and it substitutes the body. And you get mm. near instant response times and all server-side rendering. So you basically have to put no logic in the client side. And I, I sent a very, very early prototype of a re-implementation of the Tito admin dashboard to one of our customers. And he said, did you just rebuild the whole thing in React? And I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I literally did include Turbolinks. <laughs> That's so funny. And so three years later, that, that prototype, we, we, it never shipped to customers. We still have a version that has been in development more or less since then. And at some point in the middle of that, I started adding views, these little kind of like taking a little pieces of the UI and adding views. And then I started fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting with the the, the hybrid server client piece. The, the exception logic JavaScript file got bigger and bigger and bigger. The bit that loaded the views got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then Rails introduced Webpack support. 
with native view support and react support mm. and angular support and suddenly i was like we have to put all of this into view and we're mostly remote as an engineering team but we could see the collective luck that this is not going to happen but it is actually what we decided to do in the end and uh we're sort of just about coming to the end of that process and mm. Yeah, it's been a process. <laughs> so what does the end look like now? Is it more of like Rails as like an API server and then it's just loading a, a, like a, a single page view app uh, and going from there? Or is it kind of a, more of a hybrid? Uh, what does that look like? It's still a hybrid, but the the main view in the Tito app is your event. And so all of the subsections of your event, your tickets, your orders, your attendees, all of that, that's the piece that you spend the most time in. As of today, that's entirely view. So when you load the page, we initialize a view on the whole page. There's no markup on the page. I guess Gmail was doing that years ago. And all of the UI is, is rendered using view components at this point. There's still a few places where the server renders a few bits and we've done a little bit of a hacky hybrid thing just to kind of get us over the line to ship to customers mm -hmm. um, on time. Well, not really on time, but now by now. And uh, <laughs> but that, that's how it's done. On time keeps moving, right? <laughs> on time has moved and moved and moved and moved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you're not doing any of this with iframes, right? No iframes, yeah. There had the, I, okay, I've good. had the thought, and I did do a spike on an iframe, and one of my co-engineers looked at it, and he was like, nope, we're not doing that. <laughs> so no, it's, I don't want to tell you how hacky it is, but uh, it does work, and we're basically moving every section to view. And we did, yeah. just before Christmas, we had kind of got it to a certain place, and the hacks were showing themselves, and it was getting hard to fix things. And so we just said to said we'd do a final push project to just get everything into view. And inspired by Rails, we have a little framework. There are views on the client side that map to what Rails would have given on the server side. It feels very clean now. And we've basically gone from using just a few little kind of views, view views, it's a bit confusing to say that, <laughs> as mixings <laughs> to basically embracing the entire stack from Vuex all the way to view router and then like making heavy use of mix-ins to, to reduce the amount of code that we have and to share kind of common functionality across the whole app. And now when I go to sort of a bug on that system, it just sort of start, it's starting to feel a bit more complete now, whereas like a bit of panic had set in. And the one thing mm. I will say is that I've never felt so kind of at peace with the front end as I have with this new big Tito, because it's a huge app. It's got like 150 models. It's got like, there's code everywhere. There's logic everywhere. There's a, like, there's a huge amount of functionality in there. And it sort of, for the first time feels like code that ought to live where it ought to live does, as opposed mm. to what's that doing there? Or why is that class right, there? Right. And, or how does that bit of logic get attached to that element? Suddenly it just, everything feels like clean and Zen. And uh, yeah, I've never been happier in principle and I'm really just trying to get now to be happy in practice because we haven't shipped to customers yet. Right, right. So is your view code then integrated in with your Ruby code or are they standalone projects, your client and server? Okay. So there's, two parts to that. So we have basically two UIs. So we've got one UI for the checkout and one UI for the admin dashboard. And so our Rails app now is basically the API app and that sends and receives JSON. Um, and that's the core of the core functionality for both the checkout and the, the dashboard. The dashboard UI basically sits on top of that Rails app using Rails's Webpack integration. 
The checkout app is the separate app that you're talking about. So the separate app is completely separate. It's a completely separate separate app. This is the new checkout app app that also has not yet shipped to customers, but we're, we're doing some really, really good tests with. And that is basically a standalone view app. The Rails app, it is installed via Rails because that's what we're used to. And we just have two, like it's a separate Rails app. But Rails manages the dependencies and the deployment and all of that. And mm-hmm. that view app then consumes an API for the checkout specifically. So yeah, two apps, one which is admin, UI and API, and then another app, which is just pure view. And then the really interesting thing about that one is that that app then powers our embeddable widget. So you can just drop a line of code in and then you've got an app powered by view running inside your site, which powers your ticket form and anything else you want to do with it. Nice. That goes to that component model that you were talking about earlier. When I talked about Malta and sitting in the bar, Malta convinced me to use a custom element. And so... I guess since 20, 2013, we've had a Tito widget custom element. And I, I can easily see, let's say it's two, three years down the line that we may even just release an actual native web component for that. But what's going to be great is that the syntax won't change. It'll just yeah. be, it'll be the same syntax to load a Tito widget for, since, since 2013. And that was the thought then. So, but yeah, so yeah. our version two checkout, it is basically exactly the same code you just change v1 to v2 oh now i've just told you how to load it so you can go and <laughs> play with it <laughs> do you need to cut that out <laughs> <laughs> no that's okay and so that's really nice so for the ease of implementation and then because it's running rails in the back end we have done some url hacking so that rails can actually generate some different javascript and like yeah. load load different plugins as well so i really like having the the ease and power of rails on the server side just to do stuff like that basically yeah. it has a little plugin framework so you can add things to the url and different plugins load and then that all loads um, the view app and it just basically, I think it's using view custom element, which is this sort of hacky web component wrapper. They have a new web component implementation, but it's browser support, hashtag browser support. It just, <laughs> it's just not there yet. Yeah, I was going to ask yeah. if, if it was Vue and, and something related to Vue for creating that custom element. So that's, that's cool that that exists. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. And what's really clever about it is that one, you can edit the HTML and edit the HTML, or like the kind of the web component attributes of the of the component, like yeah, the component of the Tito widget. Mm-hmm. You can change attributes of the custom element using the inspector and the actual UI of the widget, which is a third-party widget. They update real time. So for developers who are implementing and testing, that is just so cool. And the other thing is, you can ship View Router over to the third-party site. So. Traditionally, if you embed a Tito widget on a third-party site, like say you got typescriptconf.com, and you embed our widget and you press the continue button, I mean, we could do hacky stuff to change the URL so that you've got a custom URL or whatever, but with view router, you can either do a hashtag URL or you could uh, you can do an abstract URL and map it somewhere else, but you could basically state, save URL states. So when somebody comes back to their order, with the new widget, we can basically keep you on typescriptconf.com and then just Tito serves up your order when you come back to it later or whatever. So you can push all of this really, really advanced, messy, hard to implement if you were doing it yourself functionality just by using the basic view building blocks. That's really cool. That's, it's that's really sweet. Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, for the record, we, we do use Tito for TSConf. But right now, you click that link and it just opens a new tab to Tito directly to the, to the event page. <laughs> Well, well sure, that, because Nick. it's, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> we, 
Well, because I think that our current <laughs> widget, it's old. It's, it is still that 2313. Like some of our customers have, they use multiple Tito buttons and multiple Tito uh, widgets. And every single one of those loads an iframe and each one of those iframes loads the entire server side app. Yeah, yeah. Like this is shipping so much code. So the new one is just super smart. If, it, if, it, if multiple events or if it has calls to multiple events and multiple buttons and multiple widgets, it just does one API call and it pulls down all the data it needs. So, and again, it's like stuff that was harder to implement before is just using the basic building blocks of the yeah. framework now, which is just like, oh, amazing. Well, now that we know how to actually get the new UI, Nick, just go in there and change there it. There we go. Give it a go, yeah. <laughs> and the other, yeah, the other nice thing you'll is have, that- You'll like, have like tens of extra testers now. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Send the bug request to our bug tracker. It does exist. <laughs> uh, so I think the the burning question that everyone has is: is uh, Do you use TypeScript? Uh, I do not. And that's fine. <laughs> vanilla, we've been, we've, vanilla JavaScript. We've been, no, and that's cool. Um, uh, you know, we've been tracking some of the stuff going on in Vue. Uh, there's some been some announcements that. Uh, there's going to be the addition of TypeScript that uh, it's going to be re- rewritten in TypeScript, in, I think. In Vue 3, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Vue 3. So right. it's pretty cool. And we're, we're, as a podcast, keeping our eye on that because we, we find that very interesting. But, I mean, you guys can't see this on the on the podcast, but uh, Paul is very excited about this. Um, <laughs> and he's very, very animated. You can't tell by his voice. Um, he's very excited about all of this. It's really cool to 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 hear that. So yeah. Well, the the um, thing that Vue got me into all the the Vue examples on the website are written in ES6 hmm. and coming from mm-hmm. CoffeeScript. And I guess the the latest version of CoffeeScript then updated to use all the ES6. But I like I've got a lot of uh, folks that I chat to in the JavaScript world, and they were telling me about all these new great features. I guess the arrow functions, the sync await, everything. And I was like. What is all of that? I should really spend a couple of days and uh, and learn about it. Mm. My face was like, I guess I need to describe it, but it was a large O. And my jaw was dropped when I realized hmm. how clean you could do. Again, it's like making things simple that used to be so hard that you'd never do them. Um, I guess that was the promise of Perl 6, wasn't it? <laughs> we finally got it in ES6. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> making oh, man. making hard things easy and uh, impossible things hard. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. I love that quote. Pearl six in JavaScript. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's cool that that view will be rewritten in TypeScript, and that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, when you update update to view three, that you will have to as well. That's the big benefit of TypeScript, I right. think, yeah. is they can take advantage of that. Uh, but do you see that as maybe something to investigate in the future? My general approach is to see what folks who I, I deem smarter than me are doing and then to assume that they've given more thought to something than I would earwith do while I'm off, like, picking my kid up while he's screaming in the park. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I try to keep an eye on, on what things are doing and, and what people are saying. And TypeScript for a long time just felt like it was sort of at the fringe and... Like every other thing I, I see is is TypeScript. And like, I guess Dash was a thing for a while, but I haven't seen that so much. I just go with that and then I do a bit of research and then I do a little test and then it's all about how it feels, I guess, for me. 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, TypeScript being minimally invasive has actually kind of helped a lot. Um, so you don't have to adopt CoffeeScript or or Dash or any of those other things that compile to it. And um, it'll be interesting as we see how far JavaScript starts to push outside of its boundaries as we get like WebAssembly and we can cross compile into whatever other um, targets we want. So it definitely helps. The the hard part with with TypeScript initially was that no interpreter really uh, supported the the module syntax. Now that pretty much everywhere supports module syntax, using a TypeScript module is just like using a JavaScript module. You just don't have any any typing now. I guess I'm in love with this single file component model yeah. that Vue mm-hmm. oh, pushes. Yeah. And in order to use single file components, you do need some kind of build process. And yeah. the beauty of what they do is that your script can be anything. So if I want to mix CoffeeScript or JavaScript or TypeScript or whatever else, you, yeah. you can have you can have one implementation in one single file component and a, a, a different use a different language in a different single file component. So uh, modern tooling, for all its complexity, does make it really simple to experiment with different things, which in itself is its own kind of beautiful simplicity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, you maybe have already answered this, but I, I'm not sure I got it. When it comes to tooling and integrating with Rails, is there any uh, Rails and Vue-specific tooling uh, that you're using? Yeah, so maybe this time last year, but maybe it was sooner than that or earlier than that, a, a Ruby gem appeared for Rails called Webpacker. Yeah. Which mm, yeah. You, you add that to your Rails app, and then you generate a bunch of boilerplate code. And in it, in a very Rails way, it just gives you a very IDEAM solid Webpack configuration. And so you can go from an inst, you basically install the boilerplate, and then you run your your dev server. In fact, you don't even need to run a dev server. So in a very Rails way, you can go from installing Webpacker to running Webpack JavaScript with just one command. It's it's very Rails, and then that. There's a second command to install Vue in it. So basically, two commands, and then you can use Vue as a as a kind of a first class citizen in your Rails views, which is it's super sweet. And that was kind of the that was the turning point for me because it just made it so easy that I wasn't fighting the infrastructure, I wasn't fighting the tooling. I was just running right. two commands, and then now I'm developing application code, which is always where I wanted to be. And that's why I liked TurboLinks because all of the maintenance for all of the crazy custom logic that I had built over five years, that was just gone. And so much of the the app responsiveness and the the sort of the things that I'd done workarounds for weren't required because you were just writing standard Rails views. I just started to run into cases more often than not that weren't handled by TurboLinks. And I was running so much exception logic. And that's kind of when, as I brought Vue in to handle some of the more complex UI interactions for the admin, it started to dawn on me that maybe if we put in a bit of time now, we would save time later adding more advanced features, particularly ones where we wanted to like show people the results of what they were doing because Tito is an app that basically you change settings in the back end and that affects things in the front end. And so the ability to change settings live and then show live previews was becoming more and more important to us. We still get away with the old model of change it and then refresh in another tab. But what I wanted to do was bring in a framework where people could be changing settings and seeing things like respond in the browser real time. I wanted to be prepared to build those more advanced UIs that I think that our customers mm-hmm. are going to expect rather than think they're nice to have over the next few years. I remember when that webpacker landed because Sean Larkin DM'd me on a Slack channel that we're both part of. He was like, this is so huge. I was like, I think it, it feels like it was like two years ago, maybe a year and a half. Mm. 
Yeah, I was actually working on a Rails project back then. And uh, the one infuriating thing as a JavaScript developer going into that is Webpacker gave you a Webpack command, which conflicted with the Webpack that you would install from like oh, node no. modules. <laughs> oh, no. I don't know if that's been changed, but that was infuriating. I would hope so. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> it certainly changed my whole approach. That experience I had at NodeConf in 2011, I think, where because I was a Ruby person, and I, so I went in and somebody asked, do you do JavaScript? And I was like, yeah, I write a bit of JavaScript, but I don't use Node. And he said, well, what are you doing at NodeConf? And I was like, oh, I was there when Ryan was there. Little did I know eight years later that when I went to write code during the day that I would not be writing server-side Ruby code, that 95% of the code I write today is JavaScript powered by NPM. <laughs> um, and I'm right. pretty happy about that because I do know that so much of it was inspired by the Ruby world and it sort of feels very natural to have come all this way and to have gone through every single JavaScript problem, like stereotypical JavaScript problem, like whatever it is, like spaghetti code or nested callbacks or huge code bases where you don't know where things are or giant single files where there's just everything in one file. I've been there and I've done that and I've endured it. And to be able to use dependency bundlers, package managers, to be able to just go to a library and pull it in and use it, it's just really, really nice. And dare I say, enjoyable to build JavaScript apps. <laughs> <laughs> you can say that here. Yeah, you're we a, won't tell anyone. You're among, you're among friends. <laughs> <laughs> I do find at the moment that the check-in app is actually a pure joy to work on because it's, it's relatively free from dependencies. The admin app has quite a lot going on and I'm not yeah. necessarily certain that we're quite there in terms of the, the Zen joy or the, the Buddhist emptiness that I really want to feel when I'm writing code. But um, now that I, the, ch the, the check-in app shows that it's possible. Well, I mean, Marie Kondo says that if it doesn't bring you joy, throw it out. So, Well, I'm looking for a job. Do you know anybody? <laughs> uh, well, Paul, thanks for coming on and sharing your story. And this was very enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's what a relief and a, a pleasure to come and nerd out for an hour. It's, uh, yeah. it's really good fun. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and if people want to find you, what's the best place to, to find you? Is it Twitter? Yeah, Twitter's great. I'm at Paul CA on Twitter, Paul at Tito.io on email. And if you want to check out Tito, it's ti.to. So do we have any TypeScript conferences coming up, Nick? We do. There is the TypeScript Conf, uh, TypeScript Conf US, which will be October 11th in Seattle this year. And you can get your tickets now. And if you go there, as I mentioned before, it will redirect you straight to Tito where you can purchase your ticket. Awesome. It's a very nice looking event page. All right. Yeah. And with that, until next time, stay type safe. Thanks for listening to the TalkScript podcast. You can round out your TalkScript experience by viewing our show notes, listening to past episodes, subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, and of course, following us on Twitter at TalkScript. We record new episodes every other week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. We got a good thing going on. Ba, 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 ba.